Welcome to this week's episode of the Founder and the Force Multiplier podcast, where we explore how founders and leaders work together with their right-hand partners to turn ideas into action and build wildly successful businesses. Today, I'm speaking with Anne Hyatt. Anne is a best-selling author, executive consultant, speaker, and investor. She is a Silicon Valley veteran with 15 years experience reporting directly to CEOs Jeff Bezos from Amazon and Eric Schmidt from Google and Alphabet. Anne consults with CEOs and their leadership teams across the globe on C-suite optimization. She has worked with executive teams at organizations such as Netflix, Starbucks, AWS, Google, Amazon Prudential, Simmons, and more. Anne has also been a featured speaker at major conferences such as South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, the Growth Faculty in Sydney, Australia, and the Valencia Digital Summit in Spain. Anne has published articles and publications such as Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and CNBC. She has also contributed to articles in the New York Times, Economic Times, the Financial Times, and Forbes. Her best-selling book, Bet on Yourself, was published by HarperCollins in 2021. I had a wonderful time talking with Anne about building confidence, her ROI sprint framework, and of course, betting on yourself. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I think you will, then be sure to let us know in all of the usual places, such as leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this episode. All right. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Haley. Hi. Um, so let's let's just jump right in and let's start with your book, which, um, you know, of course I have right here. Aww. And I love every time I see it in the wild, it makes me happy. I, I love that. I'm, I'm sure it's been, I actually saw it in Barnes and Noble the other day. Um, and uh, I was just, you know, perusing through it. And I saw some other people checking out books and I was like, kind of, you know, holding it up. Like, <laughs> um, oh. but let's jump in to the book, Bet on Yourself. Um, I'm assuming you kind of wrote it maybe in 2020. It was published in yeah. 2021. Um, why was then the right time to write and publish a book for you? You know, I feel like the universe chose this moment in time for me and I'm so grateful. Uh, so the process started many, many years ago. People ask me all the time how long it took to write it. And it's, I don't know when to start the clock. If I'm really honest, it was probably about seven years ago that my story first started coming together. I started sharing it and, um, but it was at a 4th of July party that I met Steve, who became my book agent. And then another couple years before he sold it to um, my publisher, HarperCollins. But yeah, so I was um, in the middle of the first draft of the book when I flew to the United States. I live in Spain now, and I flew back to the States to speak at South by Southwest Tech Conference. And that's when the pandemic hit and Spain closed its border and I couldn't come back to Europe. And so I ended up flying from Texas uh, back home to Seattle and was there for the first three months of the lockdown part of, of COVID. So it was actually in the bedroom that I had in high school that I finished writing the first draft of this book. And I think it was a really important moment of pivot. There were a couple of things that I did change because of this wild moment in time that we were experiencing while I was writing it, where I really wanted to t remove the feeling of I don't know, victimhood or like things were being taken away from us. There was just this, remember the early pandemic where it just felt like we were waiting it out and we were just kind of hoping something good would come out the other side and everything would go back to normal. It was in that time that I was finishing the first draft. And I really wanted to offer something that felt empowering. That gave us a sense of ownership, of control, of the possibility of luck and joy again. And so I am kind of glad that I didn't finish the book before that moment in time. Now, I keep saying first draft because there were three completely different versions of the book. Oh, <laughs> and the one, yeah, the one you just held up in your hands um, is the third. But I think now's the right moment for the, that book. And I, I've 
I hope that it will stand the test of time because I think there's several themes in that that will always be true. I really hope to inspire people to really see that you can engineer your own serendipity. It is possible to create your own luck. Mm -hmm. And that's an important message, especially if you're at the beginning of your career, where the the job you're in right now in no way resembles your dream dream job, or maybe your mid-level career and really fighting really hard to get recognized as a leader or have that first big breakthrough opportunity. I think that will always be true. So what I really wanted to do with the book was um, use my career as a case study, which in my opinion is, you know, I myself am not exceptional, even though the cast of characters that I worked with are very much so, and just show how with a a few concentrated efforts with some, making some quote unquote bets on yourself and really taking a chance, you can create some exceptional opportunities, especially when they might at first appear limited. Yeah. Um, I definitely think your book will uh, stand the test of time. Aww. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, so you have shared in the book that you have bet on yourself many times throughout your career. Is there one time in particular that really um, stands out to you? That's such a hard question to answer. I I love that question because it does make me reflect on several really pivotal moments. If I had to choose just one, um, let's try, I'm trying to decide between two. If I had to pick just one, it would probably be when I was creating the role of chief of staff for the very first time at Google it was something I'd seen modeled around me. So I worked for Eric Schmidt, the CEO and then executive chairman of Google for 10 of the 12 years that I worked at Google. And during my time with him, he transitioned from being CEO to executive chairman and the needs of his work really shifted. And as he was reinventing his role and his goal was to 10X his output from what it had been as CEO, which to me sounded insane. Like that's impossible um, because he was an exceptional CEO. He was highly effective, very well-known and we accomplished a lot of great things. And so when he told me that he wanted 10 X that I, I laughed and I know that's a tagline of yours. So it makes me think of you every time. Um, and I thought, okay, how am I going to do that? How my job is to help him accomplish his moonshot goals. Mm-hmm. This is our moonshot goal. And I was really looking for examples around me. And I, we were doing a lot of work in policy at the time with lawmakers, heads of state, educating lawmakers um, how to legislate according to the values of their constituents. But that required a lot of education on very rapidly emerging technologies. And in politics in the United States, there's this role of chief of staff. You see it in the military, you see it in government. And I saw the way that these right-hand partners helped their lawmaker, their executive to be highly effective. And so I modeled the chief of staff role after that. The reason I choose this as a big bet on myself moment was because it was not easily accomplished. Just creating the role itself and not only helping Eric to see the vision. turns out that was the easiest part, but getting HR to understand the vision of it, create its own ladder, help them understand what are the parameters of the role? What are the key deliverables? How would this be compensated? Where does it fit on the job ladder spectrum, especially at a company at Google that was so big at the time, creating a brand new ladder was just like beating your head against the wall. It took me nearly three years to get it officially um, created. And I was the very first ever at Google. And now within Google and in technology companies in general, it's industry standard. Everyone has one. So I think that was a real pivotal moment, not only because it was a role in which I thrived and I love, I'm still very, very passionate about it, but it taught me a lot about myself, about how to cross collaborate, how to really um, make a case for it, how to not lose enthusiasm despite constant pushback. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of my favorite moments. And it really set me up for 
my most recent one, which was getting brave enough to leave Google after 12 years and venture out on my own and create my own company. I don't think I would have been ready to do that had I not gone through that that experience first. And um, when you were creating the chief of staff role, were you um, in an executive business partner role prior to that Mm -hmm. or that was the role? Yeah. My title was executive business partner. I had been through many, many iterations of that role. It really evolved over time. My very first role was a junior assistant to Jeff Bezos at Amazon in the foundational years of that organization. Then at Google, I was first executive business partner to Marissa Meyer, who was the VP over search products and user experience. And then when I first came into Eric's office, he recruited me in and I was part of a team of three and then took over as a lead and redesigned his office from the ground up. So I'd seen the many, many definitions of assistant and executive business partner and and then to create a level um, up and beyond that that really supports that role that brings all those pieces together and really magnifies everyone's contributions in a C-suite was -hmm. just wildly fun and really challenging. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, So what what prompted you then to move from that um, chief of staff force multiplier role into starting your own company? I looked around at Google And I was really looking for the next challenge. I'd been chief of staff for three years at that point. Um, Eric was kind of starting to eye retirement, become an advisor and really focus his, his, the next chapter of his work on his living legacy, which is really around, um, what he's doing with Schmidt Futures right now, which is supporting academic research into climate change. Super passionate about that and really wanted to be able to give even more of his time, attention, and influence into that space. And so I knew that was on the back of his mind. So I started poking my head up a little bit myself also and looking for my next challenge. And I I did at first I thought I would be able to find it within Google because it's mm. enormous. There's lots of opportunities. And it was around that time that I got engaged to my now husband. And so I was thinking, okay, maybe I'll move to Europe. There's going to be some things there. But honestly, when I was honest with myself after exploring, I spent more than a year, you know, trying on different roles. Maybe I'll do something in the London office, the Madrid office, or work in artificial intelligence or anything. I realized that the challenge that I needed next couldn't be within that comfort zone. I was so well-established there. People knew me. I just, it's really hard to reinvent yourself within the confines of something that already defines you so much. So that was on, that was the reason I had to leave. And the most difficult part of it was leaving that behind. Thankfully, it's not entirely behind. I mean, all of my friends there remain very, very dear to me and in close contact, but that was really it. I, I needed a new challenge. And then the second part was I really felt a responsibility to kind of pay forward the education I had received by working for three exceptional CEOs. I really wanted to give that back to global CEOs who are outside of Silicon Valley. Didn't, you know, you don't have to go to an Ivy League school. You don't have to get Silicon Valley, you know, VC funding. I wanted to help those who are out there in the trenches, making a difference in their communities and pay forward those lessons that I learned and get that into as many minds as possible. The book is part of that. My consulting is a huge part of that. My podcast, all these efforts, all the free resources that I post every week, like on LinkedIn, I post three or four articles every week. It's with that goal in mind to really get these lessons learned, these best practices into as many entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs' minds as possible. It's amazing. (laughs) <laughs> um, 
obviously, if you just mentioned the three CEOs and you partnered with this world, these world-class leaders um, over the course of your career, were there any common themes um, or, co- you know, common strategies within those partnerships that you felt made you, you know, a successful um, chief of staff or successful executive business partner with them? I really love that question because they were, they're each very, very different in personality, each of those three CEOs. Um, But there is a commonality between, between them and how they manage their teams, which I think was a common denominator in our success. Um, I think it really comes down to humble leadership. They're really servant-based leaders. Now that's probably going to surprise a lot of listeners because maybe humility isn't the first thing you think of when you think of Jeff Bezos or Eric Schmidt, like these most powerful people in the world who are the wealthiest and the you know celebrity CEO status that they enjoy today. Yes. Um, but really, the way they managed their teams was was wildly humble. Not that they ever had any doubt that they were going to be successful. That was not part of the equation. They were determined. They did not care what got in their way. They they trusted themselves to be able to over, overcome it. But what I mean by humble leadership was the way in which they interacted with their teams, including me. When we were in meetings, a common theme was debate. In fact, um, a lot of those meetings, some would be assigned to be kind of that devil's advocate to poke holes in all the favorite ideas, help us see different perspectives, anticipate uh, the needs of our users or our, our customers or consumers. And I think now, I didn't fully appreciate until I left Silicon Valley how rare that is. There's um, something in Silicon Valley we call the HIPPO effect, which stands for the highest independently paid person's opinion. And once normally in most environments, once the hippo has spoken, mm-hmm. uh, all innovation and debate and creativity stops. Yes. And my CEOs were exceptionally careful about the hippo effect. They um, didn't let people just tell them all their ideas were good and all their jokes were funny. They demanded that kind of candor and debate. And um, they did the same with me, which can be terrifying when you're not used to someone so powerful, so smart, so accomplished doing that with you. But when you get used to it, it's wildly empowering. And I think that's why we were able to do such exceptional things. And um, it really made me raise my bar. I couldn't just phone it in ever. They were going to call me to task and make sure that I was contributing to the best of my abilities. And now that's really a a methodology that I use with all of my CEO consulting clients now. And um, it's one that is really, really fun, especially introducing it to someone who isn't used to that candor. Yeah, um, I I love that you mentioned the humility piece. I also agree that you know just great leaders in general have that that characteristic of humility and and everything that you just said. It just makes me think of they're they're just okay being wrong and they're okay yeah. being challenged. And um, it's such an important part of leadership. That's where the best ideas come from. Is when you ha- can have that healthy debate. Yeah. Um, Speaking of, how did you build the confidence to be able to challenge their their thinking, or and you know, what is some of your advice on how to build confidence in general? It's one of those words that it's like, oh, just be confident, or you need to build your confidence. But but how do you actually do that? I'm really glad you asked that because it is something that needs unpacking. I would like to set the record real straight right now. I am not a naturally like outgoing, extroverted, overly confident person. I am um, an introvert. I'm a closeted introvert by by nature. I'm timid. I really, really care to a fault what people think of me. I'm worried about not performing not only my best, but like perfectly. And mm. it's really hard for me to make mistakes. But <laughs> thankfully, though, my career nurtured me out of that because that was not the, an environment 
in which that would survive even for five seconds. So I really got nurtured out of that. So the answer actually is you just, you learn it line by line. So one example is, you know, as a chief of staff, your job really is to anticipate, to weigh in on strategy, to be very forward thinking and really think of solutions and gather the data that you need before anyone's even asked the question, right? Right. How on earth do you learn to do that? (laughs) Especially in technology when I'm the only one in the room without a PhD in computer science. Um, The answer is line by line. So when I look back on my time with Jeff Bezos, I had an amazing manager, John Connors, who to this day is still Jeff's chief of staff, like 19 years later. And I really credit John with teaching me all my core instincts. And so I would be in these meetings where I didn't understand. At first, I literally didn't understand anything they were talking about. I didn't know the terminology. I didn't know the people. Mm -hmm. I didn't know all the code names. I, I was completely lost. So after the meetings... I had kept detailed notes and I would kind of just check in with John and say, did I understand this right? Or, you know, ask all those kind of quote unquote, stupid questions. And he would help me build my initial compass. Once my my takeaways were accurate, then I started asking him proactive questions being like, wouldn't it be interesting if we explored this or has this been tried before? And he, he would educate me on the process of what had happened before I arrived. Then when that got good enough, I started being brave enough to ask a question in the meeting because I knew I wasn't wasting anyone's time and I knew what was going on. And and then I got brave enough. And that's when you really learn really fast because if you embarrass yourself in that room, you're not going to do it twice. Um, but because of that environment I already described where there's this humility and they they love to be challenged, that was really welcomed. And based on that, then fast forward into Google, my job really was to anticipate. I was working in war rooms and product launches and in high stakes you know, situations where I had to anticipate and then I needed to make proactive recommendations in the room. And then eventually, you know, that skill set built where I could anticipate and I could su- suggest strategy and then literally be the, de- the decider on behalf of my CEO when he was no longer in the room. And he, a lot of that could be delegated to me. We're talking a 15 year progression. So wherever you're, so a listener is in that journey, like be patient with yourself because this is not something you learn overnight. But it's also not something you learn without failure, iteration, pivoting, and trying again. It takes a lot of bravery. Yeah, yeah, and and I and um, I know that the whole thing with failure comes up a lot. Of course, when we're talking about confidence and being willing to fail forward, how did mm-hmm. you become comfortable with failure? Oh, I don't know if I. I mean, nobody likes failure. I hate it. I hate failing. Um, but I was, I was recently training for my, I think it's my fifth half marathon. And it's been since pre pandemic that I ever ran any distance of significance. And I want to add an asterisk here of like, I'm a terrible runner. I'm not running because I'm good at it. I'm not running because I have any time I'm ever going to post or brag about. I do it because I like to do hard things, to prove to myself that I can do hard things and enjoy it in the process. It's not about winning or being the best. It's not, I didn't even set a PR. It's not like I'm competing with myself. This most recent half marathon I just ran in October was my worst ever, oh. but that's okay. <laughs> but anyway, I bring this up because um, I was listening to this training track um, with a running coach uh, while I was preparing for this half marathon. And she said something that has become my new mantra where she said, you can't push yourself until you trust yourself. And I, I just like stopped in my tracks and I was like, that is the most genius thing I've ever heard. That is, so that is how you build your confidence. And that's how you get okay with failure, even though I still hate it and it makes me cringe and I'm embarrassed and it wakes me up at four o'clock in the morning. I now know because I've overcome so many big mistakes and I've done it in front of people whose opinions really matter or when 
hundreds of millions of dollars were on the line. I now trust myself. I can trust myself that I know how to overcome. I can ask the right questions. I'll pick myself up and I'll do it better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Might not be perfect, but that's how I baby step myself into tolerating failure because it's actually a better word for it is, um, is learning, right? That's, yeah. it's just yeah. iterative. So a, I still hate it. It's okay if you do too, but B you can learn to trust yourself because once you've done it once you get even better the next time. Yeah. I love, I love that. Um, that trust piece. So important. Um, let's talk a bit more about the, the book. So can you walk us through the recognize own and implement breakthrough opportunities concept mm-hmm. that you talk about in the book? I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I think it's a core piece of the book. And so when I was thinking about how to write the book, there are a lot of stories that I tell from, you know, the foundation of the internet or behind the scenes, things that no one else would have experienced, these moments in time that will never happen again. The internet will never be invented again. Jeff Bezos will never invent the gold standard of e-commerce again. Google will never, you know, become the dominant search engine again. So while it's very story driven and I want it to be fun, um, and and kind of a bit of a page turner that has its own momentum, it was equally important, probably more important to me that it was applicable. Like, mm. okay, it's a nice story and I've had a very interesting ride and it's fun to talk about, but that's so what, right? So what I really wanted to do was create a framework where someone could take these lessons that I learned usually the hard way and through a lot of embarrassing failure and apply it to their own dreams, their own situation, regardless of their seniority, their industry, what their ind- individual goals are. I wanted to really extract that lessons learned, those best practices, that playbook and help somebody apply it. So at the end of each chapter, there's this ROI structure mm-hmm. that stands for recognize, own, and implement. And at the end, I give these thought experiments where you first recognize is really about stepping back. We don't do this enough because life is so busy and our to-do lists are bottomless, but really stepping back and giving, allowing yourself to reflect on what's working, what's my actual goal, and asking yourself these, these questions that give you a North Star of, what does success look like for me? What do I want to learn in this next chapter of my career? What type of expertise do I want to be known for? What kind of leader do I want to be? It's really about creating your own SEO, your own search engine optimized results for yourself. Yeah. If someone's recommending you for something, what's that sentence you want them to say? So recognize is really about that, pausing and and doing this. And that's something we should do for ourselves often because that's going to change over time, different periods of our career, life circumstances change, et cetera. So that's recognize. Then once we've recognized where we're at, what our big goals are, what's working and what's not, O is for own, which means we're going to take some responsibility for it. And this is a very empowering exercise because I hear all the time, especially people in support roles or administrative roles who feel like it's really hard to measure what they, their contribution is, it's that they're, because so much of your assignments are assigned to you or determined by someone else's growth goals or where the organization's going or your executive needs. And I call BS on that. I say, there's actually way more within your influence of control once you decide it. So own is about that of like, what is within my control and how can I set myself up for success? And then I is for implement. And that's where we say it out loud. We make a goal. We assemble all of our mentors, our sponsors, um, all of our stakeholders in our life, and we get them aligned with where we want to go and remove some of these roadblocks. And really those are the excuses that keep us from reaching our biggest goals. And so throughout the book, we do several exercises where we go through the recognize, own, and implement structure to really help you replicate the best practices of some of the most successful people in the world. 
Yeah, I I loved that framework. Um, and of course, the questions that you ask, because I love I love questions. Um, <laughs> but I, I do love that framework and in, um, in particularly the implement part, because I do think that's often um, we can think about it, we can talk mm-hmm. about it. But how do we get into action to actually make the changes that we want to in our career or in our in our life? Yeah. Um, okay, so in chapter eight of your book, you talk about that first speaking engagement that you had uh, in New York. Uh, correct, that was your first speaking engagement. It was ever yeah. in my whole life. I had no oh. idea what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I was actually in. I remember being in the audience, and I remember exactly where I was sitting and watching you. No, I, I did not know that. Um, but um, part of that chapter, you talk about stepping onto the stage. So what is some of your best advice, um, for others to step onto the literal or figurative stage? Mm. Again, like, don't wait until you feel ready. That moment is never going to come. Um, I was wildly unprepared for that. I had never even thought about getting on a stage. It was that conference was for administrative professionals. I didn't even know those existed when I got invited to come and speak. Um, And so I went there, even though every other person on the roster was a professional speaker, this is how they earned their living. They had these beautiful slide decks. They had these well-polished talking points. They clearly had crafted their story and their journey. And they were sharing in these very, very effective ways. And I literally went up there. You probably remember with like three note cards of like, general principles of things I thought might be interesting. And I like paused in the middle. I didn't wait for Q and A at the end. I was like, after like (laughs) a random moment, I would stop and like, it was just, I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I didn't want that to stop me from being helpful. And so when you're really focused on what is it that we're trying to accomplish here, you know, the fact that I didn't have a slide deck, I was the only one without a PowerPoint. I didn't really, I hadn't well-crafted my talking points or how to tell my story, but I knew what I wanted to teach and I was sure it was going to be helpful. Mm. I just focused on that. So I learned a lot and I asked for feedback after I, I enjoyed it. And after, you know, it was well-received. So I decided, okay, maybe I'll try that again and I'll get better. And so um, Vicki Sokol Evans, who is now one of my dear friends, was a total stranger to me. And she saw me speak there and she, she really helped me. She gave me some feedback after of how to make it more memorable, how to organize it in a slightly different way. And so I just iterated. And so that's my advice to you is think about what's the outcome you're looking for. And ideally it's something outside yourself. It's something bigger than you. It's a, a change you're trying to make, um, advice you're trying to give, a lesson you're trying to pass along. And when you're focused on that thing that's outside of yourself, it's so much easier to be brave because it's no longer about you. Yes. Um, I heard someone, gosh, who was it? It might've been Rachel Hollis who said that um, being nervous is selfish. And at first I was like, that's a harsh thing to say. And I was like, you know, she's kind of right. When you're nervous, you're just thinking about self. What are they going to think of me? How am I going to look? Am I going to sound stupid? Am I embarrassing myself? It's all about me. Mm -hmm. But if you're thinking about, can I just be useful to someone out there in the audience? If I can pay this forward so they don't make that same mistake or so they learn this faster than I did, the nerves go away. So that's been really helpful framework for me. Yeah, that's, um, I I love that. The whole, the nerves. Um, Somebody also mentioned to me one time that, like ner- um, nervousness and excitement are really like on a, on, on this, a spectrum. Uh-huh. Um, and really, if you just think about that, that nervousness is also really just excitement. And if you just yeah. channel into that a little bit, um, that can be helpful too. I heard something, gosh, who was it? Mick Jagger or one of these like super, super rock stars. 
Um, he was sharing that he still gets super nervous, like literally sick to his stomach before he goes on stage. And he said he's tra- reframed that in his mind to, to be like, when when I feel that nerves, that pit of my stomach, I know I'm ready to rock. And I literally tell myself that when I feel nervous, I'm like, nope. And that means you're ready to rock. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, I mean, I know obviously with your organization, you, um, your new company, you do a lot of coaching consulting, um, for leaders mm-hmm. and we're in an interesting time post kind of post this pandemic, post COVID, um, the markets are shifting. What do leaders need to know today to be successful? You know, I really think we're having an important moment in time. I was, I was privileged to be there at the golden era of tech. And I'm so grateful I was when, we were so wide-eyed and optimistic and maybe super naive about what we were trying to do. But I, I call it the golden era because it was really a time where we really, really, really believed and were centered on making the world a better place. Then there was this important reckoning that happened, you know, five or so years ago, where some of those originally well-intentioned technologies started to have ill consequences in the world. And there was this moment where we had to have this reckoning of like, what have we done? What do we want to contribute? How can we pivot this? We need to take more responsibility. Um, And there was this incredible article um, in Time Magazine I was reading this morning, or Demis Hassabis, who is the CEO of DeepMind, which is the artificial intelligence company that Google acquired in I don't know, 2013, I want to say. He, he was speaking at Davos, which is the annual uh, meeting of all the world leaders. And he was talking about the great reckoning we need to have with the effects of technology in the world. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really my message to CEOs now is we need to have more responsibility, more scrutiny. True leaders welcome that. They know that that comes with the territory. They accept their responsibility, not only for their intended consequences of what they're building, but for the ripple effect and the unintended ones. And um, one of the reasons why Google bought DeepMind originally when we were seeing that artificial intelligence was going to be central to the future of all tech, um, the reason we acquired DeepMind was because one third of their employees were ethicists. One third of their employees were there to not ask, you know, the engineers get super excited about how difficult something is and can we pull this off? No one's ever, you know, done this is impossible. And, and, and the ethicists are there to say, but should we? Mm -hmm. And that is a trend I like to see happening right now is sensing not only that responsibility to shareholders, but also to your stakeholders, your employees, your users, and your community at large. And I welcome this additional scrutiny that's happening in tech. I think uh, tech leaders really need to be held to a higher standard and to account. And I'm very, very excited. I, I can say with full confidence, every single one of my clients takes that wildly seriously. That's probably why they sought me out because they want to rise to the occasion and to anticipate and to show up in a more effective and ethical way. Yeah. Um, I would be remiss if I did not ask you what your thoughts are on um, the executive assistant role, the chief of Mm. staff role. Um, How do you see the, I mean, obviously we know that the chief of staff role has become incredibly prevalent over the past, I don't know, maybe I would say five years. It's seems to be grown exponentially. Mm -hmm. Um, But what your thoughts are on kind of the future of an EA role and what the the differences are? I'm really excited about this space because I think there's been a real up-leveling moment. Uh, Teams are realizing how important it it is to have somebody not only thinking about, here's the analogy I use a lot that might be helpful. Um, I think of this team as an orchestra. 
you know, whatever organization you're in, your CEO's responsibility is to compose the music. They understand how all the parts can come together into this beautiful whole. They know the rises and the falls. They know how to create the drama, how to create the momentum. They see the vision for what this piece is going to become. I see the chief of staff really as the conductor. This is somebody who um, isn't first chair violin. I'm never going to be first chair violin. I, I don't know how to play the violin. And that executive is in charge of her violins. And there's another over percussion. There's another over string. You know, there's, there's, everyone has their own expertise and roles to play. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're realizing is there needs to be a lot more operational focus. In fact, all of my scale up CEOs now say to me, they have this moment of reckoning where they're like, why didn't I like focus on this earlier? Mm -hmm. Why didn't I bring, cause I, I say that the the administrative structure of the company is the skeleton upon which everything else is built. They're systematizing it. They're making these moonshot, they're taking these moonshot goals and breaking them down into hundred manageable steps. And that I think is so fun. And I love that it's getting more recognition as a leadership skill. You're seeing more cross collaborative projects, more responsibility in project management, people management. And that's why I think it's really fun because it's this nice hybrid role where other people are, you know, focused just on violins. We are seeing the whole of an organization in a way that's really rare in a company. And so I think I find it to be such a privileged seat. So the difference between EAs and chief of staff, I think EAs are those um, individual contributors that have specific responsibilities, for example, logistics, um, briefings, making sure that everything is anticipated and lined up in the way that reflects the ever-evolving priorities of an executive office. And then they partner with the chief of staff um, who's responsible for the data. Having, if I had to oversimplify that job into one deliverable, it is anticipating what data is going to be needed and when, so that the executive always has that at their fingertips to make the right decisions in the right moments. And then that person then can go on and replicate their decision-making in rooms where they can no longer be in because it's way too many rooms (laughs) as, as you grow. So I see those roles coming together as a powerhouse, and I think it's only going to get more fun. I am not worried about it being, um, you know, replaced by artificial intelligence. I do think some of the rote, boring parts that none of us like anyway, like expense reports and calendaring and like all those things can go away. But what is even more needed in a modern executive office is that anticipation, that people management, project management, cross collaboration. While so everyone else can keep their heads down in their swim lane, and you have this beautiful conducted symphony coming together. Yeah, I could not agree more. I, and I love that analogy. Um, I saw that you had shared that over on LinkedIn, um, yeah. as well, or in a in a in a talk that you had done recently. Probably and, both. <laughs> yeah, and probably both, and it was spot on. Um, what is your next personal or professional ROI sprint? So, um, I have many. That's that's what that big breath was about. Um, but what I'm really excited about is I um, just recently hosted my first masterclass specifically for chiefs of staff. And that was just kind of a tester to see what were the common questions? How could I be helpful? And is this something I want to lean into more? And I think the answer to that is yes. Um, because so much of my work right now, I'm focused on scale-up CEOs where their organizations are doubling year over year. So in that rapid growth comes all the wonderful challenges that accompany success. And what I'm discovering is, is I can't just help that CEO as a silo. 
she needs to bring in her entire leadership team. He needs to bring in his chief of staff where it's really um, a concentrated effort where everyone understands the role they're playing. And so I'm looking at the C-suite as a holistic organization. Um, and it, I can't do that just for the CEO. So it tends to start with the CEO. Then they're bringing in their chiefs of staff, which many of them are hiring for the very first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then bringing in that entire C-suite of senior executives. Um, that tends to be the progression. So that's what I'm really doing. I'm recognizing that what excites me most is focusing on C-suite optimization for companies that are making those changes in the world I want to see. I want to own my piece in that, that I have experienced it in a way that very few people in the world have, and I want to pay that forward. And I'm going to own it by trying to help as many people as possible. This is the hard part is how do I scale that? So that's my big moonshot goal for 2023 is really looking for opportunities to scale that and reach as many people as possible. Not just those who can afford my one-on-one consulting time. Those at the beginning of their career, those are who, who are students, those who are tinkering in their garage or who are entrepreneurs looking for that you know, promotion for the first time and want to be able to show up for all of them. So that's really hard. That's a big goal, <laughs> but I'm working on it. There's many, many facets to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's great. That's exciting. <laughs> um, where can listeners connect with you to learn more about... Um, about all of your work and, and follow you along while you implement this moonshot goal. Oh, thanks. I um I show up regularly on LinkedIn, as you mentioned. So I post two, three, I think four articles a week on LinkedIn on average. So that's a good place for to get little bite sized snapshots of like best practices or things I'm seeing, trends in technology, or most importantly, um, some challenges that we can all take on to make our make our biggest goals come true. And then I've just um just finished like literally last night, polishing touches on my brand new website, which is anhyatt.com. And I am going, I have free resources. I have downloads. I have articles. I'm starting to populate all of my LinkedIn articles because I love LinkedIn, but it is so hard to find archive content. So I'm going to have the whole library of everything I've posted on there. It's going to have links to the podcast, all of these free resources so that anybody for free at any time when you have a spare moment uh, can benefit from this community of, um, of learnings of lessons learned mistakes I've made um, so that you can make your biggest dreams come true. Awesome. Um, Well, thank you so much, Anne, um, for joining me today. I really appreciated the conversation. Me too. Thanks for having me.